getting older. I'll be 50 next year. Can't believe I'm almost 50. Um, and the benefit of being old is you get to look back on the various stages of your life and you begin to realize, you know, how incorrect you were in your younger days. I know for those of you who are young right now in your 20s, you think what you think and what you know is like, that's the truth and that's what's real. But I'm telling you, you know, the 50-year-old you will look at the 20-something-year-old you and realize you're wrong a lot of times, right? So, and I say this because I look back on my Christian journey and I got converted um, when I was in college. And when I was, got converted in college, I thought, you know, uh, being passionate for the Lord and exercising spiritual gifts were, you know, were the primary ways in which Christians live. I thought Christians have to be passionate and Christians have to exercise their spiritual gift for the glory of God. And I thought this way, perhaps, because I was baptized into, I, I was saved by a group of friends who were really into, who were really passionate for the Lord, and who were, really, who were really into exercising spiritual gifts. So when I was younger, I thought that was it, right? Man, when we, when we gathered during, during our prayer meeting sessions, it was a three-hour, like, screaming session. We were screaming at the top of our lungs, praying, because we thought that's how God wanted us to pray. I thought passion, even though I had a very shallow knowledge of who Jesus was, and spiritual gifts were the signs of mature Christianity. Then I went to seminary, and I started being, and I studied, started like study theology, and I went, I went to perhaps the brainiest of all seminaries, and when I was in seminary, I thought, forget passion and forget you know spiritual gifts, right? It's theology that's important, having the right knowledge of God that is important, right? So my focus has shifted, right, to theology. If that was my 20s, right, like, like, all theology. I hated charismatic gifts. I just hated it, right? I hated shallow passions, you know, like the passion of the college kids. They're all passion, and yet their knowledge of the Bible is very shallow. I was so offended by that. Theology is the way to go. Then, as I started doing ministry, I thought the mature Christian ministry is the mixing of the two, passion and theology, passionate theology, right? So I wanted to preach and convey Christ in a way that is passionate and theologically correct. I thought that was the most important part of Christianity, passionate theological discourse. But having studied these verses in the last couple of weeks, I realize that's not the most important thing. The most important thing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, is love. Love is a sign of true maturity. Love is a sign whether you get God or not. I thought theological, passionate theological discourse is the thing that God will look at, at my life and judge me for. That's not true. It's love. Right? 
I'm not saying spiritual gifts are not important. They are. I'm not saying passion is not important. They, they, they are. I wish we had more passionate people in our church. That's true. And I'm not saying theology is not important. Theology is really important because, prop, because in order for us to love properly, we need the right idea of God. True love stems from true knowledge of God. And that's true, and that's what today's sermon is about. But Paul is saying love is more important because spiritual gifts will disappear when Christ comes back. Prophecy, preaching, will disappear when Christ comes back. What will not disappear is love. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the embodiment of love. Like we said last week, love is an essential character of God, and God will never disappear. That is why Paul says love endures forever because, that, because love is a characteristic of God and God, will, God, God never disappears and his characters never change. That's why a true representation of whether you know God or not is love. What is the love that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13? What is the definition of love that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13? He uses the term Agape, and like we talked about last week, agape is a self-giving, self-sacrificing love for the benefit and for the life-giving benefits towards another. That's agape. This, these qualities that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 13, he is describing, the, 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 the qualities of agape that he's describing in, the, in these verses he is listing the qualities of Jesus Christ. These qualities that Paul mentions here, he, he's, he's, it's not just some random things that he thought of what, what love is. No, he was thinking about Jesus Christ. These qualities of Paul discourses in these verses is the quality of Christ. Do you know what Jesus do you want to know what Jesus Christ looked like? Study 1 Corinthians 13. This is what he's like. According to Paul, Jesus Christ is patient. Jesus Christ is kind. Jesus Christ does not envy, does not boast. Jesus Christ is not proud. Jesus Christ does not dishonor other people. Jesus Christ is not self-seeking. Jesus Christ is not easily angered. Jesus Christ keeps no records of wrong. He does not delight in evil, and he rejoices with the truth. Jesus Christ always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. These are the qualities of Jesus Christ. And when you are saved, the meaning of salvation is when you are saved, God transforms you into the image of Christ. The, the term born again means Becoming of the same nature, right? So before we're born again, we were of different nature of God. I'm not saying all of us are omnipotent, omniscient. I'm not saying that, right? But there is, because human beings were created in the image of God, initially we were designed in accordance to God's nature. We, our, our natures conform to how God designed us to be. Sin, by sinning, we are going against the nature in which God created us to be. So rather than loving, we're self-seeking. 
But when Christ saves us, the term born again means he transforms us so that we will become in conformity to the nature as he has made us to be. And the nature that he has designed us to be is to emulate Christ. So when Jesus Christ saves you, he starts to make you look like him. These, when Jesus Christ saves you, he, you start to embody who he is. You will start to embody the qualities of 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is not only a list of who he is, it is evidence of fruit in a salvation, evidence of fruit in a saved person's life. Look, I didn't know it when she was little, but the more my daughter grows up, the more I realize She's exactly like me and like my wife. She's an embodiment of me and my wife. She's the perfect embodiment. I don't know where my, where my son gets it, but my daughter. My daughter, you know what she does, for, you know what she does on her free time? She, is, she writes novels. She draws. She plays music. She writes novels because she, and the novels that she writes, she, she does a psychological anal, an analysis of all her characters. Like, this, this person has mommy issues. This person was abused. So her, her novels are really complex. She gets that from me. The desire to express herself art-wise, it, she gets from her mom. The more she grows up, the more she, start, I, she starts to bear the image of me and my wife. That's what being born again looks like. You may not know it when you're first born again, but the more you live, if you are saved, the more you embody these characteristics of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul is saying these qualities are more important than any spiritual gifts. Because these qualities embody Christ more so than the gifts that we exercise. What is the quality of love? So let's look at these things that Paul defined what love is. Verses 4 to 7. Paul lists the qualities of love. Right? Verse 4, he defines what love is. He says love is patient and love is kind. But from, verse, from the latter part of verse 4 to verse 7, he defines what love is by telling us what love is not. How do you know what something is? Not only do you define it, but you also tell what that thing you're trying to define is not. By defining the opposite of what you're trying to define, you define, you, you define the very thing itself. So let's look at these qualities, definition of what Paul considers love. But before we begin the study, these verses are not just to be studied theologically. These verses are not just meant to just take notes on, go to small group, and have a theological discussion on. These verses are meant to be meditated upon. Maybe some of you will think, oh, PJ, we're talking about this love again. Let's just move on, because there's some of us who just wants to move on, quickly cover ground. But that's not what these, perp- these messages are designed for. These messages are designed for you to study and reflect and pray over. 
when you, for example, when we study the word patience, do not just understand what patient means, but study it on your own. What patient love of God means and how God is patient with you. Truly take time to study what the patience of God means and what, how God is patient with you. You need to actually study and meditate upon this truth. Not only that, examine yourself. Are you really patient? Just don't study the word and just move on. Examine your life. This, these words are supposed to be a mirror. Look at yourself in the light of these words. Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you envy? Are you proud? Are you boastful? Are you self-seeking? Look at your life. Most of us are very easy, are just so busy looking at other people and how they're making a mistake. These words are designed for you to look at you. If these are the qualities of Jesus Christ, do you inhabit, embody these qualities of Jesus Christ? Let's look at patience and kindness. Paul defines love as patience and kindness. Patience and kindness are the same, are, are, are the different side of the same term. So he uses love in love. There's a patience and there's kindness to love. If this is love, there is patience and there is kindness. It's, it's love, but a different size of love. Patience is the passive sign of love. What do I mean? Patience, it, patience means you don't immediately retaliate when you are injured, annoyed, or someone bothers you, or, someone finds you, or, or if you find someone offensive. Patience means you don't immediately retaliate. You are controlled. You, you, are, you just don't do anything. You, are just, you don't retaliate. That's the passive side of love. Kindness is the active side of love, where you put, act, put into action self-sacrifice, self-denial for the benefit of someone else. That's agape, the, the passive, non-retaliatory side, and kindness, the action side of things. God's love is patient and kind. But if you examine these verses, if you, if you just think about this word, patience and kindness, these words involve a form of self-denial. It will cost you something. Right? To not retaliate when someone offends you, it costs your anger. It costs the suppression of your offense. To actually exercise kindness, it costs you something. It may cost you your time. It may cost you your pride. It may cost sleeplessness. Whatever it is, kindness will cost you something. This is very different from the way that the modern culture defines love. How do modern culture defines love? Modern culture defines love as, what is it, chemical feeling? Instant chemical reaction? We have chemistry? It defines love as what? Um, uh, how does it define? Like, you know, unexplainable feelings. 
If you say, why do you, if someone asks you, if a woman asks you, why do you love me? And if you can give her exact reasons of why you love her, then that's not love. My wife once asked me, why do you love me? And I said, when I was foolish, because you're good to me, you're nice to me. She didn't like that. Love has to be, there ha, it has to be an unexplainable feeling. This butterfly you get when you love, that's what modern culture defines as love. Modern culture defines as love as, you know, familial loyalty. You know, parents love for their kids, right? That siblings love, that's familial, familial loyalty. Culture defines love as acceptance and non-judgment. You don't judge people, you accept, you accept people for who they are. Even though people who say these things are often the most judgmental people, regardless of what it is, it's, it's acceptance without judgment, unexplained feelings, chemistry, natural affections. But what these modern definitions of love lack is the self-denial part. Modern culture would say, if your wife doesn't make you happy, you should leave her. If a church doesn't meet your needs, you should leave the church. If people in the church find it's, it's offensive to you, you should, dis, you should just ignore that person and not pay attention. You, you have to leave, basically. If it costs you something, it's not love, culture says. God's love says no. True love always costs. It's true. A love that doesn't stay a love that leaves, a love that is so easily given up, it's not real love. It's shallow at best. But the love of Christ is a love that costs something. Do you understand? Let's talk about patience. Patience, as we talked about last week, is called long-suffering. When someone injures you, when someone insults you, when someone offends you, if someone disagrees with you, you don't retaliate. Even though you may have the ability, the authority, and the ammunition to retaliate, you don't retaliate. You control. The example that I can give you is this, and married people will appreciate this. You know, when you're married, your spouse does something really annoying or says something really annoying. And there is something about you that wants to just, this anger, annoyance just bubbles up inside. And your natural reaction is to express, is, is to express your displeasure by thinking about the words, by, by choosing hurtful words. Right? You go back to the Rolodex of your history and how your spouse has wronged you in the past. You take that out. You take unkind words out, right? Like, you know, you, you, you take out your disappointments and you roll it into one and you throw it at it. Sounds familiar? Littlest annoyance. It doesn't take much. We take it and we throw it. We sling it. We, we sling this offensive words to each other. That's anti-patience. Patience says, 
even if you're right, you don't retaliate. You suffer long for that person. The greatest act of patience is demonstrated on Jesus, by Jesus Christ on the cross. Second Peter, first, is it Second Peter, First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus Christ on that cross, people hurled insults at him. They threw sarcastic comments on him. They spit at him. But Jesus Christ did not retaliate. Even though he had the power to do so, he could have sent 12 legions of angels and put an end to it then and there. He had the authority, the power to smite those, to, to those, smite those blasphemers. But he didn't do it. He suffered long at the, at the Christ. That's patience. Not retaliating. Suffering long for it. Are you patient? Love is also kindness. It's an act of self-giving. Self-sacrifice. When we went to UVA, I was, I'm such a bad parent. Like, I've never been to UVA until like a couple of months ago, right? I've never, like my, neither, we never did a college tour thing because I'm too busy and stuff, right? And so, because we knew Caleb was going to UVA, so we just, okay, let's just drive there. So we drove, drove down to UVA not knowing what to expect. All the tours were canceled. We didn't even know whether the campus was open. We just went, right? At the bookstore, when we went there, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it was like 90-some-odd degrees. It was really hot. In the bookstore, Caleb, Caleb started to talk to this guy who just recently graduated. And Caleb starts to ask questions. Caleb's really good at that. Caleb's really good at going to random strangers and just talking to them. I don't know where he gets that. He just started talking to this guy. And this guy said, hey, you want me to give you a tour of UVA? And I go, really? He goes, yeah. So he took us around in a 90-degree heat for two hours. I, I felt so, like, you know, bad for him. I said, can I buy you a drink? Like, you know, it's hot. And he said, can I buy you something? He says, no, it's okay. For two hours, he endured the heat, answered all of Caleb's questions, explained everything about UVA. He left without a reward. That's an example of kindness. He didn't have to. He asked nothing in return. He just showed us, showed us kindness. That's what kindness is. Even though the other person that you are being kind to isn't deserving or asks you to do it, you show kindness. Jesus Christ showed kindness in his earthly ministry. Did you know when he was doing ministry, he, he was worn out. Jesus was, man, he wasn't, 
the God nature of him obviously is an inexhaustible source of energy, and that's true. But when he was man, he was tired. He, when he was ministering, power went out of him. He was tired, but he healed. He taught nonstop because Christ is kind. Are you kind? Do you constantly give yourself, give yourself over to other people for their benefit? Patience and kindness. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg, and it made me cry yesterday. And the story was about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, um, when he was a young politician in Springfield, Illinois, um, one of his rivals was this guy named Stanton. Um, I forgot his first name. Stanton was a mean politician, right? He started calling Lincoln names. He called Lincoln a monkey, a gorilla. A gorilla or a monkey? A monkey, right? And all throughout, he called Lincoln an idiot. He called Lincoln a monkey. There was someone, right, there was an explorer who was going to go to Africa to try to look for, to try to find a monkey, and Stanton told that guy, don't go to, yeah, don't, you don't have to go to Africa to find a monkey. Go to Springfield, Illinois. I know a monkey who lives there. And he was referring to Lincoln. When Lincoln became president, he made Stanton his secretary of defense. And when someone asked Lincoln, why did he choose Stanton to be secretary of defense? Lincoln said, because he was the best man for the job. After Lincoln was assassinated during his funeral, Stanton was sitting on top, above Lincoln's casket. And Stanton was crying. And Stanton says, here lies the greatest ruler the world has ever known. His heart shifted. From an insulting brood of a man, his heart shifted and recognized the greatness of Lincoln. Because Lincoln was kind and patient. Christians, that is how you are called to live. Not just instances, not just individual like instances, but every day, that's the call, that's the love of Christ that you are called to embody. And you know what? When God, when God calls you to love, be patient and kind, he, often, he doesn't make it easy for you. He takes you and he places you in very difficult situations with very difficult people. My wife has a best friend in Korea. She's working, a Christian, she's a Christian, she's working for a boss that she hates. The boss is sexist, the boss is unreasonable. She wants to quit, but she can't. There's no other job. What is God's calling for her? To be patient and kind. My wife has another friend. She's, she's living with her in-laws. And these are traditional Korean in-laws where they expect her to cook three days, three times a day and do all the laundry and do all the housework. And she can't leave because her husband is the eldest son or, eldest son or something. What is God's call? To be patient and kind 
to our in-laws. The world says, leave, go for another place to live. God says, stay there, be patient and kind. One of my close friends, his wife told him the only reason she married him was because of his money. She told him directly, I married you because of your money. The world says to my friend, get a divorce. God is calling her, calling him to say, be patient and kind. I have a friend whose wife cheated on him. And he just doesn't know what to do. Every time he looks at her, it's just betrayal and anger, and it's just crazy sad. The world says, leave. He thinks God is calling him to be patient and kind to his wife. I have a friend who was, who was a nominal Christian, a churchgoer at best. And he married another churchgoer. But she got converted. And God has revealed things in her and she just, she's just totally converted. But the husband remains a nominal churchgoer. She's, she's having a deeper understanding of God every day. The guy just stays where he is, very worldly, thinking that he is a Christian even though he has no idea who God is. There's a difference in the depth of understanding between her and her, and her, and her husband. It drives her crazy. God is calling her to be patient and kind to her husband. When God calls you to be patient and kind, He doesn't make it easy. He places you amongst people in situations where you can't readily leave. And these difficult relationships can last for, you, for the entirety of your lifetime. My friend, whose spouse cheated on him, he will have to be here for the rest of his life loving his wife. People say, let's love and be patient to each other and kind to each other all the time, but they don't tell you. Sometimes it will cost the remainder of your days. Guys, the people that you marry, they come with all sorts of sin and faults and traumas. Every single one of us marries someone with traumas and sins and selfishness and pride. What are you going to do, leave them? God says, stay, be patient, and be kind. Suffer long. Sacrifice yourself for the sake of the other person. Look, the most like the Supreme Court nominee, right? What was her name? Amy Coney Barrett. She has a five-year-old child with special needs. And that, and that kid will never be cured. She needs to parent that child for the rest of his life. It will not get better. But she's called to be patient and kind to that kid. That's your calling. Embody the qualities of Jesus Christ amongst the most difficult people for a prolonged period of time. That's how you reflect the gospel. 
Do you understand? That's what he's calling you to do. The songs that we sing make it seem that love is easy and good and cheap. It's not. It is soul-breaking. It is difficult. But for the sake of Christ, you need to be patient and kind. I need to be patient and kind. How do you do it? Does that patience and kindness come from you? Of course it doesn't come from you. Your mind will think it comes from you. But your mind, but what you think of, how you act betrays what you think. Your mind thinks you're capable of being patient and kind, but how you live, how you feel, tells you that you can't be patient and kind. Because it doesn't take much. It takes just someone just cutting you off in traffic to, to hurl insults at that person, doesn't it? It doesn't come within you. To be patient and kind, to fulfill the calling that God has called you to do, called you to be, is you need to understand that God is patient and kind to you. And the only reason why you are Christian is because He is patient and kind with you. What, may I ask, what is, why do you think you're a Christian? That's the question. Are you a Christian? Because you know God has, been, God has been patient and kind with you? It's your identity of Christian is because of God's patience and kindness or it's because it's the culture that you were raised in. If it's merely a culture that you were raised in, you don't have the power to be patient and kind. Let's talk about the patient love of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we talked about in, in, in Exodus 34. God defines himself as what? The Lord, lo, the, where, where is that verse? He defines himself as, as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousands, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God describes himself as a patient and loving God. His patience and love is reflected upon the fact that he forgives sin and wickedness. So let's talk about the sin and wickedness. Rather than punishing people for their sin and wickedness, he is forgiving and patient with them. So let's have a proper definition of what what, what kind of wickedness the Bible talks about. First, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave, them, gave men over to a depraved mind so that they, so they do what ought not to be done. Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing wickedness as this. Men and women did not think knowing God is a worthwhile endeavor. Knowing God is not important. Right? So God gave them over to a depraved mind. What is a depraved mind? A depraved mind is an inherent deficiency of moral sense and integrity. It consists of evil, corrupt, perverted intent, 
which is devoid of regard for human dignity, and it, it, and it is indifferent to human life. So when you, when you think God is not worthy to be known, your mind becomes depraved. Your mind becomes, you might start to have an, a, a depraved, corrupt intent where you, have, where you dis, 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 disregard human dignity and you are indifferent to human life. A depraved mind has no regard for human dignity and disregards human life. What is what does a depraved mind look like? What is the fruit of a depraved mind? Paul lists these qualities. The people who are depraved minds are people who envy, they commit murder, they have strife. Right? They, there's a conflict, right? They 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 are they, they they have deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, god haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. A person who has disregard for human dignity and different to human life, Paul says this person gossips. This person has no mercy. They're not forgiving. This person has no problem using their tongue to lash insults on another person. This person is immoral and engages in immoral behavior and, and, and thinks nothing's wrong and approves of those who engage in similar behavior. What is an evidence of a depraved mind? You, you insult people without regard to their dignity. You look at things you watch things for entertainment in which another human being is abused, and you have nothing. You don't think there's anything wrong with that. You mistreat other people because you have no regard to their dignity and humanity. That's what a depraved mind looks like. Do you have a depraved mind? I do. Look, this week I was listening to a, to a, to a, to a preacher. This is a fa famous preacher, but some of the things that he says, I just think is just wrong. But I feel myself, when I was listening to how wrong he is, I just didn't disagree with him. I felt my heart hating him and hating everything that he stands for. That's evidence of depravity. Do you watch and enjoy things based by someone being humiliated on screen? That's depravity. Do you have no problem lashing your tongue out against the people that you love? That's depravity. The world is full of depraved people, including Christians. The difference between Christians and unbelievers is that all of the, the, the unbelievers think there's nothing wrong with their depraved minds and the way they act. Christians 
God is, even though we have remnants of this depravity, God is working out a sanctification in us so that we will overcome such depravity, but we still have traces of it. People are trashing God's world. People are trashing His people. I am trashing God's world and I am trashing God's people. You are trashing God's world. You are trashing God's people. We are. What does God do when he looks at the world, when he looks at you? Do you think he's pleased with us? The Bible says no. In the Psalms, there's an image of, of God aiming his arrow at the world. But he relents. There's a part of him that wants to sling the arrow of destruction to the world, to your life, and to mine. But he relents. Why? Because he is patient. 2 Peter, verse 3 9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. First Peter chapter 3, Paul is talking about the scoffers. These scoffers tell Peter, hey, you say God is going to judge the world. Where is this judgment? Come on, Peter, you said God is going to judge the world. Where is this judgment? And Peter is saying, don't misunderstand God. He's not slow in passing his judgment. His judgment will come. His judgment has not come yet because he is patient. And and the reason why he is patient is because he doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to repent. The reason why God doesn't destroy the world yet and the reason why God doesn't destroy the people of the world yet is because he wants people to repent. That's the patience of God. There's a part of him that wants to destroy the world and destroy all of us with it. But he relents because he wants you to repent. People are depraved. We do depraved things. We slash God's world and his people. But he's patient. God is also very kind. Not only is he patient, he he is kind. His kindness is evident by the fact that he provides for the world. Jesus says he provides the sunshine and the rain to the wicked and the non-wicked and to the wicked and righteous alike. Which means God provides food and nature and benefits to the wicked and non-wicked alike. God provides, that's the expression of his kindness. I am... At all my days as a lawyer, I experience God's kindness in my job. I really do. I don't know why God has given me this crazy job, but what I know is through this job, He is showing me His kindness. Last Friday, man, it was, I was doing a case and it should not be approved. Everything in the law says this case should not be approved. It shouldn't be approved. But it got approved. And my, my partner said, oh, I'm so proud of you. You did a great job. I'm proud of you. But I know it's not me. It's the Lord. 
over and over again in my job as a lawyer, he really provides things. He makes things happen. I'm a beneficiary of his kindness. The fact that we're fed, the fact that we're alive, the fact that we're provided for is an expression of his kindness. The reason why JYP got converted, you know why JYP got converted? Because he realized one day, all his good fortune, he cannot possibly be responsible for. He says, I looked at my life, and I think 99% of my achievements, I had no responsibility for. Someone other than me did it. And he was wondering who. That began his his journey into, into Christ. His awareness that someone has been kind to him. But the greatest kindness that God can show, and not only by providing for you, but calling you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the patience he has for you and the love he has for you? Do you know the fact that the ultimate demonstration of his patience and kindness is the cross? On the cross, God showed his patience. Rather than punishing us as we deserve, he punished his son. And because his son was punished on our behalf, we are clean. And because his son lives, we are made alive with him. The only reason why we are Christians is because of God's patience and kindness. Do you know that about yourself? Or do you think it is the most natural thing in the world for God to love you? I don't think it's the most natural thing in the world for God to love me. More than anything else, I know it takes a lot of patience from God to love me. I know that. I'm not easily lovable. I mess up, and the things that are breeding inside my mind, if you know what what is breeding inside my mind, you will not want want me to preach to you. And I know he suffers long to love me. Do you know he suffers long to love you? Or do you think you're just so naturally lovable? You're not. And I know God is kind to me. Do you know he's kind to you? Oftentimes, when I think of God's love for me, I remember, I just picture Hosea. Remember Hosea? The guy called, God called to love the town, you know, friendly woman. And over and over again, she betrays him. And over and over again, he forgives him, and he cleans her, and he provides for her. I'm Gomer. And God is Hosea. Do you know about yourself? Or is your Christianity just cultural? Are you a Christian because you just, you just were born into a Christian family? Are you a Christian because you had some nice religious experience when you were young?
Do you know he's patient and kind to you? Undeservingly so. The Holy Spirit ministering this to you is a secret to your patience and kindness. He will place you, like I said, with impossible people for a very long period of time. I think, I mean, I don't want to degrade marriage in any way, but I think sometimes that's what marriage is. God placing you amongst the difficult people for a very long period of time. Can you be patient and kind? The only way to do so is for the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Testify to the patience and kind of Jesus Christ in your hearts. Daily. That's the only way to get out of it. That's the only way to do it. If there is no Holy Spirit in you, you know what the fruit is? Fruit is what we're going to talk about next week. It is envy. It is pride. It is being boastful. It is rejection of truth. It is giving up. It says love always perseveres. The opposite of that is giving up. If there is no Holy Spirit ministering to you, testifying to the patience and kindness of Jesus Christ, you will want to give up and you will quit. You need Christ. You need His patience and kindness. You need to be made aware of His patience and kindness. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we stand here thinking that we're Christians. And we think somehow, Lord, being a Christian is the easiest thing to do, but it's not. We're Christians because we have received the patience and kindness of God. And you continually show your patience and kindness to our lives. We are undeserving of your patience. We are undeserving of your kindness. But you shower us with patience and kindness anyway. Father, love like this, we cannot express. We, don't, we do not deserve. We cannot express our gratitude for it. We are made alive. We become yours because of your patience and kindness. And the call, Lord, is to show this patience and kindness to those who are perishing, to those who are difficult, to our enemies, Lord. Father, you have placed every people, every person in our life for a reason, and that reason is to show them prolonged patience and kindness. But we can only do that, Lord, when we are, when we are motivated, when we are inspired, when, when, when the Holy Spirit supernaturally work in us. So we pray, dear God, for that continually work in our hearts. May we base our faith on your patience and kindness. May we not base our faith on foolishness like culture. But may we base our faith by the fact that we are loved and forgiven by the living King. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.